Hello and welcome to another episode of the More Than Books podcast, episode 51. I'm your host, Sierra Whitfield, and in this very special episode, we are joined by two guests. Robin Bernstein, our esteemed library director, and Alicia James, our outreach specialist. We will be looking back on 25 years of the More Than Books newsletter, as well as discussing the importance of outreach services and our upcoming and ongoing events. So please sit back, grab a snack, and enjoy the rest of the episode. I'm here with Robin Bernstein, Senior Director of Library Services, to discuss and even celebrate the More Than Books newsletter 25th year anniversary, which would be like a quarter of a century going on now. Actually, 25 years past. We're starting 26. 26. Yes, we just completed the 25th volume. So to set the scene, can you tell us what life was like in 1997? You're asking me to think really hard about what life was like back in 1997. I know it was a lot different than the way it is right now, um, but the library itself was not the library that you see now. Um, We did undergo a renovation in 2001, and so what we had before was something that looked like something out of the 70s. We had orange carpeting. We had orange stacks. Um, We only had seven full-time employees at that time, two part-time and four work-study students. We were open 77 hours a week as opposed to the 93 hours that were open now. We didn't have any subject online databases yet. Um, We did have CD-ROMs that consisted of databases and were on tables Um, in these carols, and we had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them. Um, I couldn't even tell you how many we had, Um, but it was called, it was from ProQuest at the time, which we do have ProQuest now, but we did have 40 different databases on CD-ROMs at the time. The only online service that we had was the Encyclopedia Americana. Um, Around that time, I had just started my 20th year at Bellevue University. Um, We only had print books at the time. Electronic books wasn't even in our vocabulary at that time. We had approximately 129,000 to be exact, which is more than half of what we have now. So we have about 56,000 print books now. Um, And we only had 13 public access computers. And it was primarily for word processing at the time. We did have a web page, but um, that was the extent of our electronics at that time. In 1997? In 1997 is all we were using computers for. Do you know what the greater library sphere was like back then? What sort of practices were new and upcoming? Well... Conversion to digital was definitely up and coming. A lot of people were reading collections because with databases, whether they were on CD-ROM, they weren't yet online. They were just starting. Very few were online at the time. People were busy comparing what they could get rid of because the journals might be available online now and we wouldn't have to pay for the print subscription. 
And I know, speaking of my colleagues in library land, that was the big thing on everyone's mind. Um, we were also gearing up for Y2K around that time because everyone thought that Y2K was going to be the be-all and end-all and our library systems would all collapse. We did have an integrated library system at that time, but it was a standalone version and Bellevue was on BTLS and they were just getting more into the online environment where you would be able to, they would host it rather than us host it. Um, but we chose not to go in that direction. But, and other libraries, um, consortiums were a big thing at that time. Everybody was collaborating on their resources because nobody could really afford the online environment at that time. So if one library had it, then we could send somebody else to that library to, to access the information and vice versa. What initially sparked the idea for the More Than Books, or should I say, Not Just Books newsletter? Well, the first issue was Not Just Books, but it was only one issue, and then it became More Than Books. So I just like to think of it as More Than Books now. But we were looking for a way to communicate with the Bellevue University community, and we thought a newsletter might be a fun idea. No one predicted it would be going on this long. It was just a way to let students, faculty, staff know what we had in the library. Um, we brainstormed for ideas for a publication title, um, and we settled on not just books because we were just then getting into the digital field, like I mentioned, albeit it was CD-ROMs, but it was still digital. It was a digital format. So um, we thought, we're not just books anymore. We now have these alternate media types. And so that's how we kind of came up with the title of the newsletter. Um, I don't know if any one person came up with the idea. I think it was just talking with other people in the library and thought it would be fun. One person I remember saying, she goes, well, I could put it all together if you would edit it. And I said, yeah, I have no problem editing. Um, so that's kind of how it came to be. Did you guys look at other uh, library-based publications to look for inspiration? We had access to a few library-related magazines at that time, pretty much American Libraries, Library Journal, and so forth. That was the two main ones that we had um, subscriptions to. But we kind of came up with our own ideas for columns. We didn't want to be what other people were doing. We wanted this to be unique and geared for our students, not for the general population. Although we did share our newsletters, we sent them out to the area libraries at the time. But we tried to come up with some catchy phrases that would um, make people say, hey, what's this all about? So that's why you see they kind of rhyme and they start with the same letter, you know, our features. But um, we wanted it to cover a multitude of mediums in the library. We didn't want it to just be about the library for, for people who are not interested in libraries as a whole, but rather for what we can do for you. So we had... Rec we had um, Features on 
electronics, you know, um, we had features on about people, so it was more personalized. We did have some reference because, of course, we are in the information business. And um, everything was print resources at the time. And the first few newsletters were only in print. What impact has the More Than Books newsletter had on the Bellevue University community? Well, I would like to think that it's had a big impact, but we've never um, really surveyed the community, you know, Bellevue people, whether they find it valuable or not. Maybe I never wanted to know, but, uh, you know, it has weathered the test of time. It's still going 25 years, so we have to be doing something right. We still get comments from people saying, thank you for this information. Um, we don't distribute as much as we did before. It's more electronic now. We have a few paper copies that we have in the library, but we don't send them out to anyone. Um, you know, I, I don't know if it's had an impact, but like I said, I hope that it has. We still have some of the same features, but we've added some over the years to keep up with the changing times. You know, we have to change with that. Some features worked, some didn't. Very few didn't, I'll say that. But um, the ones that did are still there. Every feature, we may have had some name changes to some features, but they're all still there. Can you give us some of the newsletter's greatest uh, successes? Sure. Um, I would say that among our successes were the advancements in technology we have made. Um, the renovation of the library, which has occurred several times. We had the large renovation, um, but we then had to have the carpeting replaced since then because the renovation was in 2001. Um, and then we had, I think it's pro it was probably about 20 years before we had the carpeting replaced. And then we had all of the chairs reupholstered because chairs that are fabric only last so many wear and tear times. So we've done that. We have eliminated some of our compact shelving that we had in the beginning um, to make room for more seating space, um, for collaborative learning possibilities, more study rooms for students, and just more ergonomical furniture and comfortable furniture for that's more conducive to study. So I would say that technology has been the second um, besides the renovations that had the most impact. As I said, we started, we had BTLS at the time, which was the Virginia Tech Library System. It was a standalone system. So we knew that they were not where we wanted to be. We had to move. We couldn't host a standalone. We were getting too big. So around that time that we were searching, the Nicollet Group, which was the private independent college libraries in Nebraska, we're also looking to migrate to a new system. So they were nine libraries at the time. We were part of a pickle group, so we were a part of the larger group, but they were part of a joint automation system that they were looking for, and so they formed the Nicollet. And so we joined in on them on that search because we were both looking at the same, well, all the nine libraries and us were looking at the same vendor, which was Searcy wasn't Searcy Dynex at the time, it was just Searcy. And Searcy did serve more to the academic side. 
at that time. So we chose to do that. We migrated. Once again, it was a standalone system, but the server was housed on Concordia University Library's campus. And that worked well for many, many years. And then um, Searcy merged with Dynex, became more of a public library looking ILS system and didn't keep up with the times of academic libraries. And they were well aware of that. Um, unfortunately, you know, change just happens. And so the Nicollet group decided they wanted to move away. I didn't necessarily want to move away from Searcy because I saw what they had in the pipeline. I saw the potential. So we decided we would migrate to the cloud with Searcy Dynex. And so that was our third migration within those 25 years that we had gone through. Other successes, let's see, the growth in the staff. As I said, we only had seven full-time. Now we have 16 full-time. Um, the introduction into social media that, you know, we started with Facebook. Then we had to close down our Facebook account due to certain reasons. Um, but then we brought it back and we've added a blog. We've added Instagram. We've added Pinterest. And now we've added TikTok. We entertain the thought of Twitter, but even now I don't think we will proceed with Twitter. Um, the other successes are probably the innovative services that we had, um, that we developed, um, as well as third-party vendors developed. For instance, our 24-7 chat. We were the first library in the state of Nebraska to have the 24-7 chat. Um, actually, before it was 24-7, we were the first people to have a virtual chat that was live virtual chats. Um, everybody you know, not everybody, but many people had um, kind of a text to librarian or a chat with a librarian, um, but it went to email and then they would get back to you. So we had that live virtual chats. And we did that actually when we were um, moving from our current location to South Roads, our temporary location, while we renovated in 2001. So that was the reason we did it so that our students would be able to reach us live and not have to go to South Roads to see us. They could get um, some um, help via the virtual chat. We did have a textile librarian service. That didn't last very long. We found that our students were not using it. Um, maybe it was because younger people were using the textile librarian and we had more of an adult population at the time. I also know that uh, texting back then, you would have to pay per text. You did. You were limited to how many characters you could do as well. Correct. Um, we had Kindles. We added Kindles to check out for people. And we added the discovery layer so that we could search all of our online databases at one time. So that, that was another success that we had. And we still have the discovery service. We still have the Kindles. And we still have the chat service. And then some of the programs that we developed um, were Build It, which was our information literacy tutorial. And that is propri proprietary towards our library and it helps people navigate through our library, but it's open to anybody to use. Um, our Library on the Go program, where we take our materials and it started just as print, you know, just print books. We would load books up 
in a car and take them up to another building and hope that people would want to check them out. And they did. People came. Um, it has undergone some renovations on that. And, you know, it's still still going strong. So we're keeping that. And then our RAP program, which is our research assistance program. But it started off as our personal librarian program. Um, and what we did there is we really personalized our attention for our students. We would assign a librarian to work with students. And we still do that. Um, and we have oh, about 170 students currently in that program. So it has grown a lot since we started that. And then our infamous Copyright Center. Um, we are a little bit unique where we will get copyright permissions for our faculty. We take care of all of those permissions for them. So if they want to use content in their courses, we will do that. So we created a Copyright Center website, and that is updated as needed and always current and has been expanded and revamped several times as well, but it's still here. So I would say those are our top successes. But of course, the, these past 25, now going on 26 years, have not been without challenges. As you said before, the initial name for the newsletter was Not Just Books. Why do you think the initial name was not well-received? And, okay, I'm not sure it wasn't well-received, but we did receive a comment from a faculty member from regarding the name of it. He said it just sounded negative. That was not our intent. So with it saying not in there, it presented itself as a negative thing. So we brainstormed and decided more than books is a positive way of thinking about how we do our services now, that we're more than books. You know, we're not just books, but we're more than books now. And that's how the name came to be. And what were some of the biggest, well, I don't like to use the word failures, but biggest challenges the newsletter faced? And I would say that too. Um, we had to change some of our feature titles because we noticed other, other publications were using them. Um, for instance, our Fast Facts, that had to be changed. Um, and it's facts at your fingertips now. We wanted to keep the content that we put inside of those features but we changed the names. Um, our what's happening, we changed to our bulletin board so that it would be more of a, and that's like our last page. So it's things to look forward to where we have um, our activities coming up um, and we wanna highlight what we've done. So we've changed that. And then um, I believe there was one other that we changed. But again, it was in another publication. And so we didn't want to violate any copyright laws. I don't know that they were copyrighted features in those publications, but we just decided we'd come up with our own unique take on things. So that's how we um, got to, had to make some changes there. Another challenge that we faced and still face is engaging people. We um, wanted people to participate in the newsletter by adding puzzles, quizzes, questions, 
um, even challenging them to think and to be involved. But we received very little responses. We offered contests with prizes, and that still didn't even entice people to participate. So we just abandoned that idea. But was it a failure? I don't think it was a failure. I think it was probably um, not the right time. We haven't abandoned engaging people. We just have an engagement team now in the library that focuses on that rather than it being in the newsletter. Another challenge that we probably faced over the years was the employee turnover. You know, we would lose some of our contributors, but in turn, we gained new ones. Um, that brought new perspectives and new insights into the newsletter, which, so it was a good thing, um, but they always seemed to happen around the time that one was coming to press. So um, some people have to double up with their features. Um, and so that's kind of a challenge, but it's not a failure. Um, and we evolved into a more professional looking publication. We started out as a paper that was 11 by 17 folded in half. And it was just white paper, but we used color graphics to bring in the color. But then we moved to colored paper and um, that the color graphics didn't show up as well on our colored paper. So now we're back to white paper with better images and graphics, more pages and a more professional look and it's online. So these challenges that we face only made us better. And what have been some of the, I guess, greatest lessons that you've learned with creating the newsletter? Um, we've learned a lot. I learned you have to let people be creative. You have to not try to control every element of the process and you have to be patient. Rome was not built in a day and same goes for our publication. Um, it took a long time. There are deadlines that have to be met, conversations to be had, um, and content to remain fresh. Sometimes we um, can reuse content, but it has to be a significant change. There's just so many things. You know, people grow in 25 years, and I've seen that growth. People's writing has improved over that time. It gives them that avenue to really showcase what they can do and what they're made of. So that that was good too. Um, I learned that people like our celebrations and they come. So it was fun to showcase those in our um, newsletter. That always brought a smile to my face. I've been fortunate to be a part of it for the 25 years. Um, having been here 44 years now, so I, I'd like to think that I've grown, I've learned. Um, my job has changed over the years. So, I mean, you know, it was time for, we've showcased those years, you know. Um, when we did our first newsletter, it was actually my 20 years here. And um, that was highlighted. And we talked about how things have changed in those 20 years. And now we're talking about how things have changed in those 25 years. And it's just so many changes and they're positive changes and they're happy changes. And I'm very fortunate to be working with a great team who you know, makes me wanna to come to work every day and work on this. 
So the newsletter acts as a time capsule of sorts. Not only does it compile the many changes that the library and thus the newsletter have gone through, but it also chronicles the personal histories of those who have written in its pages. What if what has been the most rewarding element of creating the More Than Books newsletter? Um, I guess my favorite part is seeing the end result and a sense of accomplishment that is actually documented. And that's not just for me, it's for everyone who's involved in the, in the newsletter. They have something where they can say they are published. Um, we started cross-posting um, our articles from the newsletter into our blog. That's given us greater exposure on that. Um, so that, that was a nice addition. Um, we reach more readers. Um, I mentioned that I like seeing the growth in people's writing. I think that that is a rewarding element in itself. Um, we're in the, we're in the business of information and educating people. And it shows through our newsletter that that's what we're trying to do. Um, you know, we don't do this for ourselves. We don't put names on most of the features. The only feature we do have a name with is our main feature prominent on the first page um, because not everybody does the same feature. They change it from time to time. So everybody has an opportunity to try new things. And so I think that that's been very rewarding. And I think people have enjoyed that. Um, yeah, I guess that's probably what I find most rewarding about doing the newsletter. And it's quarterly, so we just finish up an issue and we start the process over with the next one. Looking onward, how do you envision the future of the More Than Books newsletter? Um, I'd love to keep this going for another 25 years, um, but I'm not sure. Nobody can predict the future. Um, I will be retiring well before those 25 years come. So I'd like to see it still be published in some capacity. Um, I'd like to read it, you know, not add not have to write them anymore or edit them anymore. But um, I think we have a lot of stories to tell. We have a lot more changes ahead. We have several in the next couple of months. And um, we have, I know we'll always continue to have a dedicated team to tell our stories. I can't predict what will happen. I can only wish and hope I think that wraps everything up. Did you have any last thoughts that you'd like to share with our listeners? I would just like to say thank you for reading our newsletter, uh, for visiting the library, whether it's online or in person. Uh, if we can be of any assistance to you, don't ever hesitate to contact us. We're here to help you. And um, if you enjoy our newsletter, let us know about it. We will probably feature that as one of our testimonials in something going forward. We haven't added testimonials to the newsletter yet, but it was thought of at one time to do that. So who knows? We always have a special thought 
So that's as close as we've gotten to our testimonials, but we would love to hear from real people that we know. Joining us today, we have Alicia James, the Access and Outreach Specialist here at the Bellevue University Library to discuss the importance of outreach services as well as our current and upcoming events. So without any further ado, let us begin. Hi, Alicia. Thank you for joining us. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for having me. What is the ultimate aim of outreach events and programs? Our main aim is interaction. We want to engage our patrons and get them into the library while giving them opportunities to learn and grow and have fun. And in your experience, what has the impact of these services been like? In terms of impact, we get to see the people who are coming in and spending time at the library. We get to see them relaxing when we do our games or our craft activities, and we get to see them learning when we do our presentations. So it's really easy to see the direct impact of these events, and it's also a good way to get them into the library space, and then they can see and hear firsthand about all the resources that we have available for their use. How do you gauge current and emerging community needs? Generally, when we begin planning our possible events, we're looking for areas in which we can educate that either we haven't done before or have a new area in which we can focus. And so uh, we're just looking at areas of interest that have previously received the most response in the past and looking for ways to kind of recreate that response. How do you use that information to brainstorm event ideas? Most of our ideas come from us looking at relevant events or holidays or even celebrations that are happening in the world around us at the time. So sometimes we'll see that this month has the Chinese New Year in it. So we'll do a specific event related to that to kind of draw attention to that event and stay relevant. And we also look at just all the different things that might be happening on campus. So we try to campus events like um, finals week and things like that. So we have um, stress less week events that we do the week prior to finals to give students a break from all the studying that they're doing. So social media has played a huge part uh, with regards to marketing and promotions for many organizations and businesses. How has it helped to promote the library? The big thing with social media is that it allows the library to promote to a wider range of people than we necessarily would be able to with just our like physical in-person advertising here in the library. We have the ability to share posts not only to our own page about upcoming events, but we can share them with other community pages directly. Our patrons who see our posts can share those with their friends on their pages directly. We can create event pages for all of our specific events that show up in different areas on websites. And this is really nice because it's allowing a lot of people to see those posts easily and share those with others. And we can also post follow-up information as well, such as links to recorded lectures or pictures from our events that we wouldn't be able to distribute otherwise. Over the years, how has the library's involvement with social media evolved? So obviously our library has been around for a while, and with that, it has seen the rise of many social uh, media platforms over the years. So we've certainly grown our personal social media presence as those times have come as well, which includes having our blog, which we started back in January of 2011, and we have a long history on Facebook. But over the years, we've also added a Pinterest account, an Instagram page, and now we even have a TikTok account. 
What goes into facilitating strong community engagement? Communication is the biggest tool for facilitating because uh, there can't really be any engagement unless people know we're here and we're doing things, which is why we make sure to make sure that our marketing of upcoming events is not only inside the library, but it's on campus, it's online, so that we can reach out to everybody and they know that we're here. How do you locate people from within the community to facilitate events such as our lunch and learns? So when it comes to finding people from outside um, the university, so finding community members to assist with our programs, we tend to look for local organizations that are related to the topics we're looking to have events on, um, such as we've worked with places like Fontenelle Forest, MSRB County Museum before, because uh, they were places that directly tied to the themes that we were looking at. And we also sometimes just start researching a topic and then look for local experts or work off even personal recommendations. So if we reach out to like somebody here on campus and they say, we don't really have anybody whose focus is that specifically. However, I do know of somebody at this location who might have some ability to help with that. So we're gonna move on to talk about our current and upcoming events. What events do we have coming up within the next few months? And are there any that are recurring? We usually have a mix of uh, presentations and hands-on activities that we do throughout the year. So we generally try to have one of each type of those during most months meetings, such as one lunch and learn lecture and one craft. Upcoming, we have a lunch and learn in November on King Tut. We're going to have a presentation on how to get started with genealogy research in December. And we'll also have a craft that we're doing in December where people can come in and make keychains. And then in terms of recurring events, we do obviously have those series. We do regular lunch and learns, but the topics vary. Um, this year we're doing a series of book tasting events and Skillshare workshops, and those are recurring events. And the book tastings are where we invite people to come in and enjoy a themed menu of books and enjoy snacks that have been paired with the titles. And then we have our Skillshare workshops, which focus on teaching the basics of specific skills. So the Skillshare workshops are something new that you've been doing this year. What was the inspiration for these sort of presentations? I had seen the idea of Skillshare workshops at other libraries previously. Um, they're usually a one-off topic or a series of workshops building skills in the same area, meaning something like a one-time budgeting class or a series of lessons on how to use tools. Um, what we're doing here is more of the individual topics. We're doing um, things that will highlight uh, library resources. So before we close out today, was there anything that you wanted to plug? I really just think it's important to have people know that we're doing the things. Um, we do our best to make sure that our lunch and learns specifically are very accessible. All of our um, lunch and learns for the past several years have been not only in person, but also streamable online. So that people who aren't physically on campus those days can still tune in. Um, and then if you still can't meet those um, Zoom meeting times, you can still watch the recordings afterwards in our digital archives. And I think that that's also a really important part of the outreach is making sure that people still continue to have those 
um, resources available after the event. And I think that's about it. All right. Thank you so much, Alicia. Thank you, Sierra. That's all for this episode, folks. I'm your host, Sierra Whitfield, and I'm signing off.